Dennis and Elsie Kinlaw served Jesus side by side for over 50 years. They lovingly opened their home to countless students, missionaries, and hungry-hearted seekers. Their love for Jesus and for each other drew scores of people into the family of God. We hope you sense the hospitality of God as you listen. Turn with me to the second chapter of Joshua. And I want us to read the whole chapter. It's a long chapter, but I want us to read the whole thing. And then I want to read another passage from uh, the uh, fifth, cha- the s- fifth chapter, the tail end. So it's a long scripture reading, but let's read slowly and just look at it so you've got the story in your mind as background for what we're doing here. <clears throat> then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now, that's an amazing confession of faith from a former pagan, isn't it? Who has worshipped the heavens and who's worshipped the earth. And now she is saying, obviously, you have a God that beats our gods. And if you've got a God that beats our gods, I need to be on his side. And so uh, you're affiliated with him. That sticks me with you. It's an amazing story. And in this story is the promise for all of us. Because everybody in this crowd was in the same shape spiritually in terms of relationship to God as Rahab was. And so she is in the, in the book of, uh, in the book of Joshua. She's the key to that Old Testament promise that it's for the ends of the earth that the Gentiles will hear that all men will have an opportunity. Okay. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and she uses his name Yahweh. I think you know enough to know that when you see the word Lord in the Old Testament, if it's all capitals, if the O and the R and the D are capitals, as well as the L, it's the personal name of God. She uses his right name. So she says, he is the God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family, because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. There's something uh, precious in that, isn't there? Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part 
of the city wall. Now she had said to them, Go to the hill, so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return, and then go on your way. The men said to her, This oath you made us swear will not be binding on us, unless when we enter the land you've tied this scarlet cord in the window, through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your family into your house, if anyone goes outside your house into the street, his blood will be on his own head. The similarity between that and the Hebrews when they were leaving Egypt, wasn't it? Uh, it, you had to be in the house and there had to be blood on the door for you to be saved. And so they say to her, get your whole family inside the house. As for anyone who is in the house with you, his blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell what we're doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. Now notice that last word, because of us. Now catch this next story at the tail end of chapter 5. One of the things that uh, still amazes me about the Bible is that some of the most important stories in the Bible are given the most briefly and with no comment. If I'd been writing it, you know, I would have said, now this one's important, you need to pay attention to it, and then I would have given you a full interpretation of all that it meant. But there are passages in the Bible that are absolutely pivotal, and bang, they're just dropped, just dropped like that. Now look at this one, and it's dropped like that. Verse 13 of chapter 5. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Now my translation says neither. But the interesting thing is the Hebrew doesn't say that. Let me read the rest of the verse and then I'll tell you what the Hebrew says. Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, the place where the Hebrew text is different is where Joshua sees this man with the drawn sword and says, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And the Hebrew says, he replied, no. The Hebrew word is low, and it means no. He says, are you for us or against us? And the divine messenger says, no. And then he says, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Now, what he's saying is, I'm for the people that are going to get hurt as much as I am for the people that I'm going to help. Don't put me on one side or the other, unless you're, the big thing is on whose side are you? Because <laughs> I'd like to save the whole shooting match of them. But I don't have that opportunity. We just had the Rahab story, you see. And so he says, no, keep it clear. Now, that may confuse you, but live with that a little bit. You know, it's very easy. Do you notice the last word in that, uh, second, in that second chapter? The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. Now, that's a half-truth. <laughs> because when you get to Ai, or I, Nobody needed to fear the Hebrews. 
because they killed 36 of them and they turned and fled desperately. But who is it that we need to fear? It is the angel of the Lord's presence. And we don't own him, but he's supposed to own us. And there's a radical difference in those two things. And that line is ticklishly difficult to keep separate. Uh, let's pray together. Father, how rich we are that we have your word and that we have the privilege of reading it. We thank you today that every person in this crowd knows how to read. We think of the millions of people in the world who don't know how to read. And every one of us has a Bible. Millions of people in the world still that don't have a Bible. Millions that have never seen one. There's still millions of people that have never heard your name. We not only have heard your name, we know your name. And Lord, we've had the privilege of knowing you. So today, what a privileged people we are. But Lord, we need to know you better. And the only way we can know you better is when we see more clearly, when we see you more clearly and understand you and your ways more clearly. So somehow or other, in spite of human instruments, you, uh, you draw near to us today and let us get a clear picture of what you're like, who you are, what you love, what you don't like, your nature, your character. Let us get a clearer picture of you so that our own lives may be cleaner and purer and richer. And we will give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. As we said last night, Joshua is part of a larger story. And there is no way that you can deal with Joshua just by dealing with Joshua alone. It is a chapter in the story of the redemption of the world by God. You're aware of that when you know that in the book of Joshua, we find that God leads his people into Israel, into Canaan, and they claim that land, a section of it is their own. That is the fulfillment of a promise given what? 400 years before to Abraham. And so what's happening here is a fulfillment of a story that started 400 years before when God said to Abraham, I will give you a son to whom will come a family, a progeny, and to that progeny I will give a, I will give a, I will give real estate. So this is a chapter in the story of Abraham. It is certainly a chapter in the story of Moses' life. Now I don't know about you, but I'm convinced for my money, Moses is the greatest and most significant human being that ever lived. The only one that would be superior to him, as far as I'm concerned, would be Christ. And, of course, he was the divine human person. But Moses, what an incredible giant he was. You take all the great men that we think about from Einstein to Aristotle to Plato, on down the line, Socrates, and as far as I'm concerned, put roll them all together, and you wouldn't quite have a man of the stature, brilliance, greatness of the man Moses. But Moses' life was not complete. And this is, Joshua is a completing chapter of Moses' life. Because God promised Moses, he'd lead his children and his people into the land of promise. And in Joshua, we get into, his people get into the land of promise, but not under Moses' leadership, under the leadership of his aide, his servant, Joshua. But now when you get to Joshua, it's not the end of a story. You can't sit down and say, now God kept his promise and that's over. Because what you have is he's brought them into a rest and if you look at the first three chapters, you will notice a play on the word rest. And if you look at the last two chapters, you will notice a play on it. He has given his people rest, but it is a rest that has a prophetic character to it. Because when you come to the book of Hebrews, you will find that the fourth chapter of the book of Hebrews is about this rest, which is, which Christ gives, which is greater than the one that God gave to Joshua. And it's significant that the two names are the same. And in some Bibles you have uh, Jesus for Joshua and Joshua for Jesus. But anyway, it is, uh, it, it, this, this book of Joshua is a chapter in that longer story of God leading his children into rest. As we said last night, Old Testament history is, has always been considered by the Jews as prophecy because they were different from everybody else. They felt they were going somewhere. 
the natural tendency was for a Greek to look back to what he called the golden age. And the natural tendency for us is to look back. You know, our, our forefathers, George Washington, these other guys, they thought more clearly. We look back. But the interesting thing is the Hebrews were turned right around and were, were looking forward. They believed the best that was yet to be. Now, there's a funny thing, and one of the words for future in the Old Testament is the word for your back. Your back is the word achor. And there are places in the Old Testament where it's the word for future. Because you see, in Hebrew, a Semite, a Semitic man, has a particular stance in relation to the compass. Because the word for right in Hebrew is the word for the south. The word for left is the word for the north. And the word for what's in front of you is antiquity, kerem, east, the east. And the east is the ancient world out of which they came. Uh, I remember, I used that one day in a sermon, and there was a young Arab sitting on the front row. And afterwards, he came up to me wide-eyed, and he said, for heaven's sakes, I've used the Arabic word small a thousand times, 500 for east and 500 for, uh, 500 for west and 500 for left, and never knew it was the same word. But you see, a Semite stands in a particular relationship to the compass. When I saw that, I thought, for heaven's sakes, I had not found the word achor used for the future. I said, then what's behind you is the future. And so I checked, and the word achor is used for the future in the Old Testament. Now, that ruined all my high school commencement addresses about these starry-eyed young people marching face forward into the future. Because nobody marches face forward into the future. Everybody mar stumbles backwards into the future. You don't stride confidently. You stumble into the future backwards. That's the reason I need the one who was and is and is to come, and he lives in that future, and I need that tug on my hand so that I don't miss the way. And if I keep that tug straight so that I'm in constant touch with him, I'll find that I stumble backwards in an absolutely straight line. Now, that's grace. But you see, uh, uh, that's what you've got here. These people are looking... I can't say forward. They're looking backwards because that's where the future is and they're rejoicing in that because the one that they worship is the Lord of the future controls it all. That's the reason a Christian ought to be able to sleep a little better than most other people. And most Christians do sleep better than their counterparts in the world. Okay. Now, this is a, this is a middle chapter in the story of God's work in human history. Because God has a work for his people. And it is not fulfilled when he gets them into Canaan and they build their walls. Now, there were many times when the Jews said, God's kept his promise and history's fulfilled and now we've got the land and we'll build our walls so high and protect ourselves and sit here and enjoy the land he's given us. But God had a purpose for Israel. You see, uh, he, uh, he called Israel to be the elect nation. Now, I may be wrong here, but let me tell you where I am. I'm convinced that election has very little to do except indirectly with salvation. Election is to ministry. Election is to service. Israel was called to be the elect nation to give the world the knowledge of the living God. Now, it's very hard for a nation to give the knowledge of the living God to a world that doesn't know him if they don't know him. But the fact that you were a Hebrew didn't mean that you automatically knew God, but it meant that you were a part of the elect people. Now, God, we are elect. We are elect for what? We are elect for a purpose in order that we can sh shed this word with a world that needs to know about the God from whom it came and the God who sustains them and looks with graciousness upon every one of them. Now, we need to recognize that all salvation is in him. Now, uh, I wish I knew how to s say this clearly enough that uh, you'd, you'd, you'd feel and sense what I'm trying to say. Uh, God has a work for us, but there's nothing saving in us. It is God who works through us that is saving, and sometimes we get it mixed up and think we've had something to do with it. Now, there is a sense in which we have had something to do with it, and here is a place where language sort of fails us. Because we share the gospel and people find Christ and we, we find great joy in that. But there's no salvation in you or me. It is all in him and in him alone. 
And the great privilege that I have is that I can be a medium through which he comes in saving grace to others. And I sit back or stand back in awe at what he's done, and I have been a channel. But I'm not what, I'm the channel, I'm not what they need. He's the water of life. I'm simply a channel through which it comes. But what a high privilege to be a channel through which the living God can go to a world. Now, uh, that's sort of a ticklish line, but there's a sense in which God needs us. And you know, I hesitate to say that. (laughs) Uh, Whether he needs us or not, however you're going to define need, he doesn't seem to get his work done without us. In fact, the only way he could save us was become one of us. The salvation of, our salvation didn't come with Christ sitting on a throne. Our salvation came with Christ hanging on a cross, and when he was hanging on that cross, he was as human as you and I are. He was the God-man. Now, some way or other, our salvation is when God can get through one of us. And so we are important to God, very important to God, chosen people with a divine purpose. But we need to keep very clear, there's nothing saving in us. It's all in him. And we become the mediums, the media, the channels through which he comes. Now, that brings me to a story which is not in Joshua, it's in Numbers. But I'd like to use it as sort of a background for dealing with Joshua. And uh, I think Joshua was influenced profoundly by it. It's uh, what to me has been across the years the most mysterious story in the Pentateuch. And let me say there are still passages of Scripture. I find myself saying, Lord, I'd appreciate it if you'd give me some clue as to what this is all about. But do you remember this passage? Turn with me to the book of Numbers. Chapter 20 in the book of Numbers. Now Joshua was here and you're all about this. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There Miriam died and was buried. Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this desert that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain, no figs, no grapevines, no pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory... The Hebrew word for glory is heaviness. And the heaviness of the Lord appeared to them. The weightiness of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm, struck the rock twice with his staff, water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. Now turn back with me to Exodus 17. And read. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. 
So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. You know, Moses' life was not easy. <laughs> now, local congregations can get mean sometimes, but it's been quite a while since I heard of a pastor being stoned. But they are ready to stone Moses. Now, that lets you know what the atmosphere is. The Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place Massa and Merivah. Massa means testing and Merivah means quarreling because the Israelites quarreled. And because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? And then the story goes on. And the Amalites, Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. But now look at this story. They're quarreling. They need water. God says, take your rod, the rod that you struck the Nile with. Strike the rock and the water will pour out. And they will know that it has come from me, God, and I've met their need. And Moses took his rock. It took his rod, struck the rock, the water gushed out, and they were satisfied. They were not ready to stone him anymore. Now we come to Numbers, which was decades later, and you've got the same situation. Israel is grumbling because there's no water. And God says, speak to the rock before their eyes, and when you speak, it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff, the holy staff, from the Lord's presence. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff, Water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. But now notice the conclusion of the story. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. These were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord and where he showed himself holy among them. Now, I don't know about you, but that passage has tantalized me probably as much as any passage in the Old Testament. Because you see, Moses is my hero. And if he did have a lapse here, can't God overlook one? He's overlooked a lot for me. I wouldn't be here if he hadn't overlooked a lot of them. But here's the greatest man that ever lived who walked more intimately with God than anybody else in human history, who talked with him face to face. And God says, Moses, you missed it. You're out. Now, uh, let me say quickly, there's one thing in the story I love. Because God said to him, Moses, you're very close to me, and you're very dear to me. In fact, you are so close to me, and so dear to me, that I'll do for you what I never did for anybody else, and will never do for anybody else again. I'll be the one who buries you. Now, I don't know who you want to see when you get to heaven, or whom you want to see when you get to heaven, but I want to see Moses. And I want to ask him about that burial. <laughs> because I, I suspect it was an absolute love affair. <laughs> now, I can't prove that. Text doesn't say it, 
but I know enough to know who it was who did it. God loved him, loved him passionately. Now, why did he shut him out of Canaan? It's interesting the proposals that have been made by the scholars. Now, one of the simplest is that the two stories are simply one event told twice, and they got mixed up each, each time and told it a little differently. And if there's any preacher in the crowd, he's got some commentaries on his shelves that explain it that way. Now, I don't believe that for one jolly second. I believe it was two events, and the two events are radically different. Now, uh, it's interesting. There are many people who say it was because Moses got mad, angry. Well, now, Moses had a temper. I've never seen anybody amount to a great deal that didn't have a temper. <laughs> if you can't get angry, I've got a question about your health. Your spiritual health. Because when God sees evil, he gets angry. And if I'm to be made in his image, Jesus was angry. But now, I don't think for a minute he was shut out because he was angry. I found a Jewish commentary on numbers. It's that thick and about that tall. It's a mammoth book. In the back of it, it has 50-some excursuses <laughs> on different points in the book of numbers. And one of the excursuses, one of the long ones, is on this passage. And the rabbis have given 12 different proposals as to why uh, why God shut Moses out. Now, uh, I read them, read them with great interest. I was interested when I got down to the end, the Jew who wrote the question basically, though he used different language, was saying the same thing. Do you know where Moses made his mistake? He did it with a two-letter word. I doubt if there's anybody in human history <laughs> who has lamented a two-letter word like Moses lamented his two-letter word. Because he stood there in front of Israel, raised the staff, struck the rock when he was only supposed to speak to it. And when he struck it, he said, do we have to bring water out of this rock? for you, and God said, Moses, you missed it. You can't bring water out of that rock. <laughs> and when you stand there and say that, you're misleading people. If water comes out of that rock, I've got to bring it. Now, I may not bring it until you speak to it. In fact, I did bring it when you spoke to it. When you struck it, I brought it. But no way you can do that. Now that story in my 70s has become one of the most important stories in Scripture to me. And let me say, I never had the vaguest notion what to do with it until I was in my 70s. So there's advantages in getting old. Now you don't get any brighter. Your head gets thicker. But you have a little more data to work with. And so... Here's where the problem is. God looked at Moses and said, you've spent your life telling them that I, Yahweh, am the Savior. And now you're linking yourself with me. And there's no salvation in you, Moses. Now there is salvation that comes through you, but it's all I, Yahweh, Jehovah. Now, for us, it's Jesus. <laughs> now, we have the privilege of carrying Jesus to people. <laughs> but it's Jesus who saves. And there is no salvation in us anywhere. All the way from beginning to end, the salvation is in him. And it's very easy for us to think we had something to do with it. And the minute we think we had something to do with it of a saving character and get that line fuzzed, 
God says, you sent the wrong signal. Now, would it really be so damning and so destructive to send the wrong signal once in your lifetime? But remember who Moses was. If you'll go back and look at the Exodus story from Egypt, you'll remember that the Egyptian magicians uh, had some of the same powers that Moses exercised. Do you remember that? And when they did, they acted, they did something, and they spoke something. So one of the Jewish scholars says, Moses is acting like an, an Egyptian magician here. And he plays the role to get the product. And the product comes, but God says, Moses, you sent the wrong signal. Could I piggyback on that to something? Do you know all the passages in the New Testament where Paul talks about death to self? I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I. Isn't it interesting? Language is a very poor vehicle to say what he wants to say. So if you split that sentence up, you can make him make it contradictory and you can make him a liar. I am crucified with Christ. I died with him. Nevertheless, I live. Yet it isn't I who live, but it's Christ that lives in me. And the life which I, I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you know the most ticklish thing in Christian service? And I wonder if it isn't in Christian living is to draw the line between us and him. Because you see, if you don't make the line clear, people would say, we disobeyed Moses and we got into trouble. They didn't get in trouble because they disobeyed Moses. They disobeyed God. And God was in the third person when Moses struck the rock. It's I and you and he. Now, uh, now in preaching, what you want is the blessing of God. I'd like when I stand up to preach, have him come along. <laughs> because if he doesn't come along, you go away just like you came, sterile and empty, or maybe worse than you came. But do you know if he comes along, you go away better? Or else under greater judgment, one way or the other. Something has happened when he's there. Now what do I have to do to get him present in my services? Or what do I have to do to get him present when I'm dealing with my children? Except for Elsie and me, it's our grandchildren. Well, no, we still deal with our children. <laughs> uh, that line has to be kept clear. No fuzzing. Because if God had not done this, they would have made bigger and bigger statues for Moses. And he is the one who is to get the glory. So what you've got in this story, which is background for Joshua, up shows the man with the sword. I don't know about you, but I think Joshua, when he got to thinking about that man with the sword, he remembered that day when Moses struck the rock. And God said, you will go into promised land. And Joshua was learning, it's only God who can save his people and only God who can deliver his people. Now, I believe we've missed that in 20th century American evangelicalism. I think we've had a lot of clever programs. We've had bright people turn their attention to things, to problems. But what we need is an act of God. Because when he comes, transformation takes place. You'll forgive me, but when I come to a passage like this, I cannot get away without thinking I find myself reminded of 1970. I was standing in a telephone booth in Canada, Banff, Alberta. I had been given a message, your academic dean calls you, there's a problem. Those were the days when the campus riots were taking place. And I stood there and dialed my academic dean. 
And I said, Custer, what's the problem? He said, it's chapel. I said, what do you mean chapel? It was 7 o'clock at night. He said, it's still in session. It began at at 10 o'clock that morning. I said, what do you mean it's still in session? It's 7 o'clock at night. Chapel was over at 10.50. He said, oh, no, it wasn't over at 10.50. Hughes Auditoriums has more people in it now than it did at 10.50 this morning. And I said, what happened? (laughs) He said to me, I was sitting on the platform next to one of our professors who was the head of our religion department. And the head of the religion department at 20 of 11, 10 minutes before the end of chapel, leaned over and he said to him, Dean, God is here. If you give an invitation, there'll be a response. And the invitation lasted eight days. Now, uh, I got a lot of questions I don't have answers for. But I know that when he shows up and he's, he alone gets the credit. There's nothing human that you can say. It's because of this guy's brightness. You know, that's the reason I get scared if a preacher's too good looking. I think he's got a brutal handicap. Or if he's too bright. I thank God, you know, I'm not too bright. Because if you're bright enough, you can say, I'm smarter than that guy. You know. Now, thank God for brains. Thank God for good looks and all the rest. But I notice that God chooses some rather odd ducks. (laughs) And I think he does it to get a point across. And that is because it's not in the natural that we have our answer. There's a <laughs> the guy who was the chairman of the board for so long of Billy Graham's association, if uh, Alan Emery, wrote a little book on turtle, on turtle on a fence post. And his thesis was, how can a turtle get up on a fence post? Only one way, somebody's got to put him there. <laughs> he can't make it on his own. We can't make it on our own. But when we're open to him, meet his conditions, then he can work. And he does. Now, uh, that's a long ways around, and it's not even in the book of Joshua. But I think it is the background for this story where the angel comes with a sword, and he says, whose side are you on? Our side or the enemy's? And he said, no. But I'm the Savior. Now, when you come, but we cannot back away from the fact that God uses people. And uh, as I said, it's ticklish to draw the line between these two things. And God does not work without people. Or at least if he does, it's exception. So if it's, if it's, if, if you've got that kind of situation, what is the role that you and I play? Now, we said that uh, Israel was a select people, a chosen nation, the predestined one. They had a role in human history. And Joshua is the spelling out of that. Now, the background for that is Exodus 19 and 20. Because you will remember when God got Israel to the Mount Sinai. Look at chapter 19 of Exodus for a minute. It's interesting, in the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, chapter 19 of Exodus, on the very day, three months out of Egypt, they came to the desert of Sinai. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you're to say to the house of Jacob and what you're to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. And the Hebrew word for that 
is a priceless piece of jewel in which a woman delights. <laughs> you see one of the feminine sides of the character of God here. I don't understand why women like jewelry. I've got, I'm married to one. But it's a vast difference between Elsie and me. You know, they clutter things up as far as I'm concerned. You gotta take time and fiddle and you, all sorts of things. But, you know, she gets delight out of them. <laughs> now there's some things I get delight out of. <laughs> but they, this word doesn't fit because this word is a word for a priceless piece of jewelry in which a woman takes great delight. Now, you know, from my point of view, jewelry is sort of useless. But for a woman, it's not. And you and I may be sort of useless according to everybody else, but we're not as far as God is concerned. He, You are a delight to him. And that's the way kind of relationship he wants to have with you. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, note very carefully, he says, all the nations of the earth are mine but you're special. Now, you're not special because you're better than anybody else. You're special because you know me. And I can use you to tell the rest of the nations of the earth who I am. And you have that special privilege of being the medium through which I get to the rest of my world. Now, that's where the specialness is, you see. Now, uh, you are to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Let me make a comment about these two things, because Joshua, this is basic to what, what you'll find in Joshua. Israel, that Joshua leads, God is giving his kingdom of priests a place in the world. And he's giving them a platform in the world. He's not giving them that land so they can sit down and say, we're a nation like every other nation. He's, he's giving them the land so they can win the Arabs to, to Christ. That changes the picture a little, doesn't it? And he gives us what we have so that we can be a means of redemption to those that are around us. Now, he says you're to be a kingdom of priests. Now, let me, uh, let me say, do you know what a priest is? The characteristic, I think the supreme characteristic of a priest is, he doesn't live for himself. A priest is to be the middle man between somebody and somebody else. And his ministry is not for himself. Now the priest may need a priest for himself, like the Pope needs a confessor. You know, the Pope has his own private confessor, so the Pope needs a priest. But that's when somebody else plays the role of the priest and the Pope's no longer playing the role of the priest. The priest is the middle person. Now, let me say, I've begun to think of that as the intercessor. Now, I'm aware that most of us, when we think of an intercessor, we think of somebody like David Brainerd or somebody <clears throat> who spends all his time on his knees praying for other people. Uh, get those images out of your mind for a minute. They're very important. That may be what God wants you to do. But a priest is a person who stands between two who need each other. So they don't live for themselves. When the priest is there, you are supposed to have the Imanu of Emmanuel. Can I play with that? You know, Imanu means with us. And Emmanuel is God with us. When the priest is there, Emmanuel is supposed to be there. 
And so God says to Moses, you got it. You endangered the clarity of the picture. Because the Jews that day said, we got Moses and God, so we got water. And God said, that ain't the way it is. <laughs> when uh, the priest is there, God is supposed to be there. That means the priest ought to have a sensitivity to the presence of God that nobody else ever had. Now, we are a kingdom of priests. Do you know the most crucial thing in my life? Is to have enough sensitivity to know when he's with me and when I've, met, when I've lost him. And I've known both experiences. It's interesting to preach on your own. I don't know anything much more hellish than preaching on your own. But it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. What the situation is, if he's there. When you get through, you say, I wish I could have done it better. But you knew that he was there. And if he's not there, it's sound and fury. Full of nothing. So it's that sensitivity to the Spirit of God. This is the reason Paul has these lines stuck in like, grieve not the Spirit. Because if he's not there. You remember what happened at, uh, Jer at Jericho? The walls came tumbling down. What happened today? I. You just contrast the story of Jericho and the story of Ai and the difference is that somebody had not learned what God was trying to teach Moses, you see. And so when God is not with his people, then there's, just like everybody else, there's nothing redemptive there. But when he's there, there is that. Okay, we are to be a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. Now, uh, why are we to be a holy nation if we are the intercessor to stand between God and a world that's lost and we're to be the means through which God can get to that world? Then all he's saying is you need to be a clean channel. And what is a clean channel? Where what comes out is not a confusion of you and me, but it's him. It's he. And so I need to be clean so that Christ can move through. And when that's true, God will use anybody he can find. We're to be a holy nation. Now, uh, what does it mean to be holy? Let me remind you of the most significant passages of scripture where God confronts a human being and a human being confronts God and human history is changed. Now the ones that I think of immediately are one, Moses at the burning bush. And when he sees the bush and it burns and is not consumed in Exodus 3, he marveled and God says to him, take your shoes off because you're on holy ground. Now, the ground wasn't holy before the bush started burning because there's no holiness in dirt until God shows up. And when God shows up, even dirt becomes holy. Isn't that interesting? And so Moses takes his shoes off. Now, the next one is this passage in Joshua. When the angel of the Lord is there with his sword and Moses and Joshua says, are you for us or against us? He says, no. I'm the captain of the Lord's host. And he says, take your shoes off because you're on holy ground. And so Joshua takes his shoes off. Now, very quickly, you're already there. You've thought about the passage in Isaiah. 
where Isaiah is in the presence of God. And he sees the, the seraphim with their six wings, two they cover their face, you know, and two their feet and so forth, two they fly. And they're crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now the amazing thing is they're in heaven. It doesn't say, and all heaven is full of his glory. But they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You may not see it, but it's there. It's there for the people who have eyes to see it. The holiness of God. Now, uh, you remember the other passage in Revelation. Where John, heaven is open, the door is open and he sees the throne of God and around it the 24 elders that are singing and casting their crowns down before him and the four living creatures who are crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts who was and is and is to come. Now last night we talked about he's the I am. He's the one who is. Now, what is the ultimate amness and what is the ultimate isness? <laughs> I wish I knew how to say that so I could communicate what I what I want to say. But the ultimate of all ultimates is expressed here. He's holy. And so he says, the world needs to see me. And if you're not holy, they won't see me. They'll see you. I was a young preacher. I was preaching in a Methodist church in an old-fashioned Methodist revival meeting. Ignorant as sin. You know, wanting to be effective. Had my reputation involved in the fruit. You know, if nobody responded, I thought I'm a failure. I didn't want anybody to think I was a failure. <laughs> so I remember one night uh, I pushed the invitation pretty hard. I got to the parsonage and a wise old pastor looked at me and said, Kinlaw, you pushed it a little there, didn't you? And there was something inside me said, Yes, you did. And when it's you, it just simply muddies the waters. But when it's he, possibilities occur. You know, I've always given thanks for that guy. Because I've watched evangelists and I felt like, I think, I don't think he ever had a faithful friend like I had. Because if, if you push it, you get the flesh in it. And when you get the flesh in it, you just complicate it. You watch Billy Graham. You watch Billy Graham. Billy learns. Now, I'd, there may have been a day when he made some mistakes like I did. <laughs> I remember some of those guys were pretty brash. <laughs> But uh, it's only God that can save. But he can't save without a channel through whom to work. In the passage in Isaiah 52, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of them that bring good tidings, that publish peace, that say to Zion, your God reigns. It's interesting, the evangelist, and that's the source of the English word evangelist, that passage through the Septuagint. It's interesting, the evangelist there is speaking to a backslidden church, not the world. And he's saying to a backslidden church, you need to remember that the Lord reigns. And he says, they that bear the vessels of the Lord must be clean. Now, you know, there's a cleanness from sins, but there's a cleanness from self.
And we need the Holy Spirit to let us know the difference between those two. And when the cleanness from self is there, they that bear the vessels of the Lord must be clean. The end of that passage is that the ends of the earth will hear the gospel. Isn't that fascinating? Do you know what determines whether the ends of the earth hear the gospel or not and know about Jesus? It's how clean you and I are. Well, we're the middle. And now God has brought his people into this land. And he's established the land so that this people can be a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. And you can't tell me that the call of God is one whit different today from what it was back then. And you know what I think? I think sometimes the standard in the Pentateuch is a lot higher than it is in contemporary evangelicalism. Much to the world's loss.